Well, if you weren't here last week, uh, we were in chapter 16 of Acts, and some of what we were seeing was God calling Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke to specific places at specific times to speak to specific people who he was drawing to himself that then he was going to use to spread the gospel throughout the world. And, you know, we kind of ended our time thinking about and reflecting on the calling of our own lives that God has placed on us as followers of Jesus, that he has specific places and specific people that he wants us specifically to reach. And who are those people? Now this week, the text is going to help us understand what do we say? What do we say when we see that person that's coming to us and we're like, that's them. That's the one that I need. I need to spend some time with them and I need to speak the truths of the scriptures to them. What do I say? And the biggest thing that we can say that this text focuses on is we can talk about the resurrection of Jesus. I read a story this week about a bright young girl who was just 15 years old and she was suddenly cast upon a bed of suffering and she was completely paralyzed on one side and she was nearly blind. And she overheard the doctor talking to her parents and the doctor said, she has seen her best days, poor child. The girl interrupted and said, no doctor, My best days are yet to come because one day I will see the king in all his glory. And that's our hope, that we in Christ shall not sink into annihilation no matter what circumstances we face. That was Phil Groner's hope. Christ rose from the dead to give us a pledge of our own rising. The resurrection is the great antidote for fear of death. There's no other answer to death except for the resurrection. Nothing else can take its place Riches, worldly pleasures or pursuits, knowledge, nothing can bring us consolation in the dying hour like the resurrection. As Pastor Gary prayed, um, for those of you guys that didn't see on, on Realm this week, Allison Pierce and Parker lost their father that I talked about and Randy talked about last week. They lost him on Tuesday morning. He was just 49 and been fighting cancer. And at the visitation on Friday, there was definitely sadness, but Christian, Christian funerals are different, aren't they? There's, there's just something different. And especially people that don't know Christ that go to Christian funerals, they can feel there's something different. And what is that thing that's different? Well, it's joy. And it's joy that surpasses understanding. Joy that even goes beyond the process of grief. Joy that comes from the consolation That is, when we die, it is not the end. That death has no claim over our souls, but that those who trust in the risen Christ are only meeting a glorious reunion with their creator after this life. I read some quotes from from some famous theologians and missionaries. They said this, Our God is the God from whom cometh salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. Martin Luther. The best of all is God is with us. Farewell, farewell. John Wesley. I shall be satisfied with thy likeness. Satisfied, satisfied. Charles Wesley. Live in Christ, live in Christ and the flesh need not fear death. John Knox. So this morning, my prayer for myself and for you is that we would be so rooted in the factual truth of the resurrection of Jesus that there would be nothing in this world, not even sickness or death, that would cause us to lose our hope. Amen?
So we're going to be looking at the whole chapter of Acts 17 today, um, beyond just what was read. And so we're going to start in verse 1. If you'd look, turn, with your Bible, turn in your Bible or in your Bible app with me. Look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we see Paul doing much of the same that he did in the previous chapter. He enters into another city in Macedonia, Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. We see him following his custom of going to the synagogue to find God-fearers and people who would hear and receive the gospel. And so he could share with them. Now, the text uses the Greek word in talking about his conversations, dialogomai. I don't speak Greek, but that's my best attempt. And the ESV translates that as reasoning, but it can also be translated to say thoroughly discuss in an argument or exhortation. It could mean dispute, to preach unto, to reason with, or simply just to speak. What we take from this is that Mike, it was that Paul was not merely standing and preaching to these people, but he was actually interacting with them, considering the scriptures. One of the main reasons that many Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah was because of his suffering and death. And that was the primary thing that Paul was preaching. Today, you might recognize this name. There's a man named Ben Shapiro, who is a uh, well-respected guy. He's, he's a conservative. He's an Orthodox Jew. Um, he's all over the news. Um, he's got some really great worldviews, and he's got some really poor views. And one of his poor views is that he does not accept Jesus as the Messiah. This is a direct quote from Ben Shapiro. He says, the Messiah in Judaism is a guy who comes along and restores the Davidic monarchy and brings the Jews back to Israel and restores Jews to practice. According to Ben, he would ask, how can, the, how can the Messiah restore the Davidic monarchy and restore Israel if he suffers and dies? This makes no sense. Ben Shapiro also says this, the concept of the Messiah as actual embodiment of God in Judaism is anathema. That means shunned. They don't accept it. Jews don't believe that God takes human form or physical form. And so they ask, what purpose would it serve for the Messiah to die and rise from the dead if he's just a man like you and me? Unfortunately, Ben Shapiro misses much of scripture and everything that's pointing to the exact suffering and death and even resurrection of the Messiah. He blasphemes the Holy Son of God. 
by denying his deity and his messiahship. The beliefs of Jews today, Orthodox Jews today, and the Jews that Paul encountered most often on his missionary trips are not so different. They're more ingrained in their traditions and less concerned with what the scriptures actually say. Orthodox Jews don't see texts like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or Zechariah 12 and 13 as messianic prophecy. And we read those texts and we go, how can you miss Jesus in them? There's actually a YouTube video. This is a side note of Pastor John MacArthur. And he's actually in a meeting with Ben Shapiro and he preaches the Messiah from Isaiah 53. I would encourage you, go, go and Google search uh, John, John, uh, John MacArthur in... Uh, his name's John, right? Yeah, John MacArthur explains Israel 53 to Ben Shapiro. It's a really great explanation of the gospel and it's really interesting to watch Ben Shapiro's response to what Pastor John MacArthur has to say. Now we know the apostles all interpreted the Old Testament, the law, the Psalms, the prophets as messianic prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. Well, where did they get this interpretation from? Luke, the author of Acts, recording Luke, uh, Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, tells us where they got this interpretation of the Old Testament. Jesus said to them, his disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't know if you caught how many times he said all there, all the prophets, all the scriptures, all the things concerning himself. So Jesus's, Jesus's interpretation of the Old Testament is a lens through which you see him. The Old Testament is about him pointing to him. And he explains to his followers, this is how you should be reading the Old Testament. Even Paul, who was not present with Jesus when he did that explanation, later, having been a Pharisee, and expert in the Old Testament, after his conversion, he now understands the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. He understands that it's pointing to a suffering Messiah, and he begins to reason with these Orthodox Jews from the Old Testament, proving that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and rise from the dead. And we see that some people saw this and heard this argument being made, and they were persuaded in verse four. But verses five through nine, we see the devout Jews reject the gospel. They stir up a mob and they attack the brothers. Now, Paul knew better than most what kinds of responses you can get from preaching the gospel. It's why he wrote in his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, he wrote this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Preaching the cross of Jesus, Paul recognized, is a stumbling block because the world, those who don't know Christ, can't understand how humility and suffering could possibly result in glory. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul isn't saying that God is foolish or weak, but he's actually pointing out the opposite. He's saying whatever appears to be foolish and weakness by the world's standards, namely Christ coming as a helpless baby, living a humble yet sinless life, being rejected by his own people, being betrayed by his own disciple, being arrested and tried even though he was innocent, being beaten and crucified and called a criminal when he was not guilty of anything. That looks like foolishness and weakness to the world. But this foolishness and weakness we recognize as actually the power of God to save. But the scoffer would say, how can suffering and death lead to life? How can a dead man save? And that's where Jesus comes in in his encore, the resurrection. John 10, 17 through 18, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And even if we jump back to the beginning of Acts in Acts chapter two, Peter's speech in verse 24, he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. But these devout Jews Ignore this truth. They're in darkness. And they don't consult the scriptures to see if the gospel Paul is bringing to them is true. Instead, they just get mad. They form a mob. They go after them. When they can't find them, they take Jason and some of the brothers and drag them before the authorities. They claim that these men are causing chaos in the city and are preaching another king to oppose Caesar. All right, I won't, I won't say that part again. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, Siri's listening though. Maybe, maybe, maybe she'll trust in Jesus someday. They claim that the men are, are causing chaos in the city and preaching a king to oppose Caesar. And it's not enough for them just to disbelieve the gospel, which in my opinion, just proves the gospel. The fact that they get so angry and they're fighting against it. If something's not true, you don't go to that much trouble. But instead, they, they, they don't just disbelieve the gospel, but they have to force and intimidate and scare anyone who supports these missionaries. They deceive the authorities so that they would be disturbed and wary of the missionaries. They're trying to slow down God's movement. But as we know from last week, that's impossible. They forced Jason and the rest to pay security or bail in order to ensure that there would be no riots. The irony is that the only people that are causing riots are the Jews. They won't accept Jesus ultimately as the suffering and risen Messiah because it goes against everything they believe and everything they practice. They will not accept him 
They think they honor God and his word, but they neither know God nor his word. If they did accept Jesus, their entire worldview, their entire way of living would have to change. And many people today come with the same mentality. I can think of a number of people, both from when I was younger and even today, who who I've shared the gospel with, who hesitate to follow Christ. And they, they say things like, I'm not ready yet. Because they know what it means. They know what they have to give up if they follow him. James Engel summarized the belief system and the presuppositions that commonly prevail on what he calls modern man. This is what modern man tends to believe, and this is also what modern man has to give up if they're going to follow Jesus. First of all, modern man thinks that God, if he exists at all, is just an impersonal moral force. That man basically has the capacity within ourselves to improve morally and make right decisions. That happiness consists of unlimited material acquisition that there's really no objective base for right and wrong, that the supernatural is just a figment of our imagination, that if a person lives a good life, then eternal destiny is assured, that the Bible is nothing other than a book written by some men. But to accept Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior, we have to admit that we don't have the capacity to improve ourselves morally and make right choices, that we are inherently evil. We have to confess that Jesus alone can give us a purpose and happiness and turn from trusting anything besides him. We have to admit that there's an objective basis for right and wrong. That is the word of God. We have to admit that living a good life is not good enough, that we cannot save ourselves. We have to admit that the Bible, the whole word of God, is completely true and infallible and that we are subject to it. This means I have to stop trying to be a better person and I need to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God in my life, that my life is purchased and it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to him and he can do with it whatever he chooses. Well, that's a lot to give up. But I'm telling you, because of the truth of the resurrection, it's worth it. Ben Shapiro denies the resurrection because he does not believe in an afterlife. He doesn't believe in eternity with God or heaven. He claims that this is the view of any Orthodox Jew and that the Old Testament does not support a view of resurrection. Well, let's see. Let's see what the Old Testament has to say. First of all, if there's no resurrection, and God's people don't go to be with God after this life, explain to me what happened to Enoch in Genesis 5.24. It says that Enoch walked with God and he was no longer, for God had taken him. If there's no afterlife and no resurrected body, then where did God take Enoch? And what did he do with him? Did he just pluck him up and evaporate him into nothing? No, he took him to be with him for eternity. Let's look at some more concrete text. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Well, it doesn't get a whole lot more clear than that. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. 
The Psalms speak about the resurrection over and over again. Examples are Psalm 49, Psalm 16, Psalm 71. Go look them up. It's clear in the Old Testament that God has always had in mind the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus is the first fruits, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, of those who have fallen asleep. And as in one man, Adam, many came to death, so in one man, Jesus, many are made alive. But as clear as scripture is about the resurrection, the gospel will always divide people. And that's what we see happening in our text. There's always different responses. It doesn't cease to be a stumbling block, no matter how true or how much evidence that there is. But what God has called us to is to not be concerned with how people will respond. Paul was not concerned about how people would respond. We need to be concerned with trusting in the Lord to reveal his salvation, believing that God is going to redeem people if we are faithful to share it. We preach the suffering Christ who died and rose again. Let's look at verse 10 through 13. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So Paul and Silas leave Thessalonica and they arrive in Berea. And what's the first thing that they do is throw out a guess. They go to the synagogue. Good, you guys have been paying attention. <laughs> they go to the synagogue like they always do. And they share the gospel with the people there. And we're told that the reception of, of these Jews in Berea is different, that they're more noble than those in Thessalonica, that they're actually receiving what Paul is saying and they're sitting there searching through the scriptures to verify if it's true. It's where we get the phrase, be a Berean. We say that about, about us. We wanna be Bereans. We wanna be the type of people that when the word of God is spoken, that we're searching through the scriptures to see if what is spoken is true. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. And we see that based on this, based, based on the preaching and based on the reception in verse 12, many of the Jews and the Greeks came to believe that they searched the scriptures and they found it to be true. But the same Jews from Thessalonica agitate and stir up the crowds. They, they, they hear what's going on in Berea and Berea is about a day's journey away, away from Thessalonica and they travel there and they weren't just satisfied with disrupting their own city, but they come to disrupt this city and they come to Berea to oppose the word of God that Paul proclaimed. So Paul sails to Athens and he leaves Silas and Timothy in Berea. And I think Silas and Timothy are left in Berea because of the reception that they had there. It was a great reception and, and Silas and Timothy were lit, left there to strengthen the church. And then after a time, Paul commands them to join him in Athens. And that brings us to verses 14 through 21. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. 
and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know more, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, he's wandering around in Athens waiting for his companions to join him. And while he's wandering around, he sees the pervasive idol worship. It's just everywhere. And it makes me think, like, what, how, what would Paul's approach be if he was coming to our country? What idols would he be seeing that, that would provoke him to go into the marketplaces and start preaching the resurrected Christ? I know for me, like, an idol is, is in the shape of an arrowhead, I'm a Chiefs fan, and we won the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I'm not saying there's not things in this life that we can enjoy, and certainly there's, there's parts of that that we enjoy, um, but are we worshiping those things? Are we trusting in those things? Because the reason Paul preaches against these idols and why he would preach against our idols is because there's no hope in them that there's no power in them, that they can't raise somebody from the dead, that if I'm facing death and I'm only hoping in these worthless things, I have no hope at all. And Paul's not satisfied with people having no hope. So he preaches the gospel, he's provoked and he does something different. Notice he goes to the synagogue and he, he shares with the Jews and the God fears in the synagogue, but he also goes to the marketplace and he's proclaiming Jesus in the marketplace and people are hearing him and interacting with him on this. It was actually said about Athens that there were so many idols, it's easier to find a God than a person there at that time. And as he's in the marketplace and sharing the gospels, two two groups show up, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers who were well-respected thinkers of the day. And they summon him to know more about this teaching. So let's let's look at the the Epicureans and the Stoics. And what I want you as I'm reading the description of some of the things that they believe, see if it sounds anything like maybe our culture or what the world today believes. So the Epicureans, Epicureans believe that the cosmos existed by accident, like, like some kind of big bang. They believed in the gods, but they didn't believe that the gods interfered with human existence. They believed in survival of the fittest. They believed that the purpose of life is pleasure. They believed that their morals consisted of avoiding competition and resulting in jealousy and failure. They were trying to avoid those things. They avoided emotional commitments. And then we have the Stoics on the other side. The Stoics believe that nothing exists outside the material world and its principles. Everything happens according to fate. Humans are free in their actions, but are morally responsible for them. And virtue is sufficient for human happiness. So these are these two groups that come and they're wanting to know more about what Paul is saying. And they've never heard anything like what Paul preached before. Some call him a babbler and others say he's a preacher of foreign divinities and they take him to the council of the Areopagus. The Areopagus is a giant rock in Athens and it's still there today. You can go and see it. And this is where Paul would have preached the gospel to these thinkers. 
this council. And this council was responsible for, if somebody was bringing in a, a new cult or, or, or foreign divinities, they were respons- responsible for deciding if those things could actually align with what they believed as a culture. So this was a heavy deal. He was going before the judges of the day, going to the judgment seat. And there they sit as judges of what this new teaching is. And the text tells us that the Athenians were interested in discussing new ideas and philosophy. And here Luke records in the most detail in the entire book of Acts, the gospel message that Paul preaches. Verses 22 through 31, that's the text that Tara read earlier. In verse 22, what Paul does is he bridges their differing worldviews by acknowledging the religious connection between them. He says, I know that you are religious. And this word religious actually translates fearing God and could be understood as either pious or superstitious. But he's trying to find some common ground to build upon. And then in verse 23, Paul starts to draw on their own beliefs to introduce the one true God. Remember, what they, were, what they were worried about was somebody bringing in a foreign divinity that was going to upset their culture. And instead of uh, bringing in a foreign a divinity, which is kind of what he was doing, he actually very strategically uses their own belief system. He takes something familiar to them. He sees an altar of an unnamed God, a God that they didn't know the power or the influence or the appearance or even the name of it. And he inserts that that God they don't know that that his name is Yahweh. He uses it to introduce the one true God. It's brilliant, brilliant strategy. He's not affirming the worship of false God, but he adapts to their current beliefs in order to instruct them on biblical truth. And what's interesting in his entire description of the gospel is he doesn't mention Jesus one time or the, well, no, he mentions the resurrection at the very end, but he doesn't mention the suffering or the crucifixion. He probably did preach those things in the marketplace. So, but that they might have heard the name of Jesus, but instead what he does is he focuses on the character and the works of God. And he starts with creation. He says that everything exists by and through him that God rules over the entire cosmos, the heaven and the earth, that he is not dependent on man in any way, but rather man is dependent on God for life and for breath and everything, that the human race is rooted in God and the history of the world and even the division of the nations and people were because of him. So he's connecting all of them. He's, He's saying, this God is here. He's always been here and you exist because of him. He says that God was hidden from you, but was never far from you. And he's who you've been seeking. He quotes their own sayings to prove that though they were ignorant about God, they were always connected to him because he had made them. Then Paul shifts into exhortion. Now that this God is made known to you, the only response is repent and worship him and him alone. Remember where they're meeting, the Areopagus, the seat of judgment in Athens. And it's interesting that they're at the seat of judgment, but what Paul is proclaiming is that he, God, is the true judge. And he's coming to judge in righteousness and his authority is proven because he died and rose from the dead. And this is where the record screeches to a halt. Of everything Paul has said, it's the resurrection that strikes them. And then verses 32 through 34, we see their response. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, 
Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some enjoined him and believed among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So the resurrection of the dead divides this group. Some mock him, but others want to hear more. And clearly we can see that there's a lot more that Paul could have said about Jesus and God's plan for salvation and why they need a savior. But Paul's driving point in his gospel message is this, repent before God because it's necessary. He is alive and he's coming to judge the world in righteousness. Now is the time to respond. Paul's priority was to allow God to work on their hearts to establish a church in Athens. It was necessary for him to help this council understand that he wasn't simply bringing in new, and new foreign divinities, but that he was introducing them to Yahweh, the one true God, the God that is calling them, the God that they are seeking. And then Luke abruptly stops the dialogue and just tells us that Paul leaves. In verse 33. And then verse 34, he tells us that some of the people who were listening believed and joined them. Dionysus, Damaris, and others. A church in Athens is not mentioned again. And there's no evidence that Paul actually ever went back to Athens after this point. So we don't really know what happened with the church there. But there was a church there, and tradition suggests that this guy Dionysus was actually the first pastor of the Athenian church. But that's because the point of whether a church got planted or not wasn't, wasn't the point of this text. The point of this text was the resurrection. These are the things that we should be sharing with those people that God is specifically calling us to. So what do we say? What, what are the things that we need to be convinced of as we go out to share the gospel? Number one, the scriptures authoritatively prove that Jesus is the Christ and it was necessary for him to suffer and to rise from the dead. That's the number one thing that we should be thinking about in approaching sharing the gospel with people. Because their questions will be, well, why is it necessary to suffer and rise from the dead? Why can't I be saved and not believe in the resurrection? Well, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, is a great place to start if you're looking for some answers about why the resurrection is important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if there's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is futile. And we are still in our sins. Those who have fallen asleep, that is those who have died in Christ, they've just perished if there's no resurrection. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied, Paul says. Then Paul says, but Christ has been raised from the dead. He is alive and all who are in him will also live. He will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. He will destroy every rule and every authority and every power. He will reign and God will put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy he will destroy, Paul says, is death itself. There are over 300 verses in the New Testament alone that refer to the resurrection. The resurrection is absolutely foundational, absolutely central to the doctrine of salvation because it is the assurance that Jesus is alive and he is able to bring us from death to life. The second thing that we need to, to know and believe and be rooted in as we go to share the gospel with people is that the biblical gospel is either going to attract 
or dispel, dispel people. And we're not responsible for how people respond. The gospel is offensive. It's foolishness to the world. The world looks at what we believe and, and looks at who we, who we believe in and they say we're uneducated. We're unenlightened, we're childish, we're naive. I saw an interview recently where the actress Jennifer Lawrence was asked in an interview if she believes in life after death. And she responded, I think it's narcissistic that someone can't imagine not existing. So the world thinks we're narcissists too for believing in Jesus. But does, does that mean we stop? Does that mean we stop preaching the resurrection because of other people, what other people might say? I hope your answer is no. No way. My mom would say, like when I was in high school and stuff, who cares what they say? Who cares what they think? Think, 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 think. I don't know why I said think. I think Taylor Swift said it best. Haters gonna hate, 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 hate. <laughs> but I'll just shake it off. Shake it off. People will divide over the gospel, but it's our conviction that we don't just claim to believe in it, but we continue to preach it always in every circumstance because we're convinced that Jesus is alive. And the last thing we need to remember and what other people need to know is that God is nearer to you than you realize. That everything you've been searching for in your life, purpose, the reason you exist, the insatiable longing in your heart to know your creator, all of those things find their answer in Jesus. When John Quincy Adams was 80 years old, a friend once asked him, how is John Quincy Adams? To which John replied, John Quincy Adams himself is very well, thank you. But the house he lives in, talking about his body, is sadly dilapidated. It is tottering on its foundations. The walls are badly shattered and the roof is, is well torn. The building trembles with every wind and I think that John Quincy Adams will have to move out before long. I love that. But John Quincy Adams himself is very well. John Quincy Adams could say that at the end of his life because what he was hoping in was his death wasn't the end. May we all say at whatever point that we face death that we are very well because our life assuredly continues with Jesus after this one. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and so loving and so sovereign and so mighty. And I pray that, that, that the resurrection would just rest anew on us today because we talk about the resurrection, but I think we don't actually grasp what it means that somebody was dead and you made them alive and that through his life, all of us can live forever with you. That's the most incredible truth. Lord, help us to believe in it. Help us to believe in it to the point that we can't help but share it with the people around us because the resurrection of your son, Jesus, is the hope for everyone. And I pray, Lord, that that hope would just spread. Help it to spread, Lord. Let it be you, your spirit working, your movement. Allow us to just be vessels that you fill up and pour out to quench the thirst of every person who is without hope. 
I pray, Lord, that as we spend some time uh, right now just responding to your word and responding and, and giving, Lord, I pray that you would just be honored and that your spirit would be speaking to our hearts and our minds, that we would be changed, that we would not leave this place the same as when we walked in. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.